Hello everyone and welcome to the first in a new series of our Boricultural Association podcasts. Let's call them ARBcasts for now. I'm John Parker, Technical Director of the Association. Welcome. To start with, these are going to be the audio versions of selected Arboricultural Association amenity conference presentations. And we'll see how it all develops in the coming weeks and months. For obvious reasons, I've tried to pick out presentations which don't rely too heavily on visuals or slides. But inevitably, there will be some references to things that you won't be able to see in this format. However, if the talk did come with a PowerPoint, then it will be available to download on the Arb Association website right next to this audio file. So you can check out the slides as well if you feel the need. Our guest for this episode is Professor Paula Shrewsbury, an entomologist from the United States, with her presentation from the 2017 conference, Tiny Wasps to the Rescue, Sustainable Management of Invasive Insects. One of the things that we have on our mind are invasive species in relation to these biosecurity risks and, and our jobs. And um, the, the introduction of these invasive species are more and more on our screen all the time. And um, not surprising because when we get these invaders into our countries, they can be quite devastating both economically and ecologically, and in some cases even um, human health issues too are associated with them. Um, What I'd like to do today is to share some information on a couple of key pests, key invasive species that we're dealing with in the U.S., um, the emerald ash borer and the brown mom-rated stink bug. When these invaders come into your country, one of the um, best ways to manage them sustainably and long-term is with a biological control approach. So I will be sharing with you some of our efforts in biological control for these two two key pests. Um, And I'm going to start with emerald ash borer and then um, end up with the brown mom-rated stink bug. And when we manage these invasive species, um, one of the most important things to do is to get a thorough understanding of the role that the indigenous natural enemies are playing and the role of the the exotic natural enemies from the country of origin of that invaded um, species. So what we've been doing is um, we've been doing surveys of infested infested ash trees, those infested with emerald ash borer, trying to get a feel for what native natural enemies are interacting with emerald ash borer in the United States. And then um, scientists have also done what we consider classical biological control, where they go to the country of origin, Asia, for, or in the Asian countries for emerald ash borer, and they determine what natural enemies are best um, suppressing emerald ash borer in that country. They collect the ones that look the most promising, bring them back to the U.S. They go and undergo um, thorough studies in quarantine um, on their effectiveness and their potential non-target effects. And then they um, hopefully, if all looks good, they can be released into the U.S. in our infested areas. And then we monitor them and evaluate them for um, their impacts on emerald ash borer. Um, and by 2003, we got it in Maryland and um, it's, if you look at the distance between Michigan and, America, and Maryland, that's quite a far jump. But um, we were lucky enough to have a nursery send ash plants um, to Maryland from Michigan, from the Michigan area, and it had EAB in it. So um, just a good way that it gets dispersed. So in Maryland is where I'm from, University of Maryland, and, and I'll be talking about some of the efforts in Maryland and in Michigan for biological control. 
What, what's happening with the EAB in Europe? Many of you know, as we've mentioned already, that it is in Russia. So these red dots show where um, EAB has infested areas, and this is the infested region. The um, hash lines show where Fraxinus, the, the host of EAB, occurs. And you can see over here in, in the UK, you guys have potential um, for EAB to get here and attack the ash trees. So what I want to do is just quickly go through the life cycle um, as it relates to biological control. The adult beetles in the spring will lay eggs on the bark of the tree, usually under little, um, the flaky bark under little bark flakes, and those eggs hatch. And we have um, four larval stages. The eggs hatch, the larvae bore underneath the bark, and they feed on the phloem cambium tissue there. Um, there are four larval instars. Then um, late in the season, when it starts to get cooler, they go into what we call the J stage for overwintering. Um, in the early, early spring, they pupate and then emerge as adults, like I said, around May and start the cycle all over again. Um, in Maryland, we have one to two generations a year, depending on, on the temperatures. The biological control agents I'm going to be talking about, we have been working with one um, parasitoid or parasitic wasp that attacks the egg stage, and then we have a few that we've been working with that attack the late instar larval stages of emerald ash borer. So first, I just want to introduce kind of who the players are that we've been seeing um, with our work with emerald ash borer and the native natural enemies, so the guys that are forming these new associations. So the, the, the native natural enemies in the U.S. who have been associated with EAB, we have a couple of parasitoid species that attack the larval stage, and then there are also some predators, and the main predator are the bird predators, and, and woodpeckers do a really nice job at finding emerald ash borer and removing it from the trees. Um, and you can always tell where the woodpeckers have been because you can see this um, stripping of the bark um, by the woodpeckers, and in, in the U.S. we call that blonding. So when we see the blonding on the trees, that, that blonding on ash trees basically tells you you've got emerald ash borer in those trees. It's a good indicator of emerald ash borer. When we have native um, natural enemies um, moving on to these invaded species, most often they tend to be what we refer to as generalist natural enemies. So they tend to feed on, on different species of insects. So, for example, some of these parasitoids feed on other wood-boring insects that are in the same family as emerald ash borer. And then when emerald ash borer came in, it wasn't a big jump for them to move on to emerald ash borer and attack that. We've also been working with um, parasitoid species from the country of origin um, for um, or the countries of origin for emerald ash borer. And the idea is that if they're working in the country of, of the countries of origin, um, can we bring them to the United States in the invaded range and reestablish those associations and get suppression of emerald ash borer in, in the United States? And right now, um, we have 26 states out of about 31 that have um, emerald ash borer working on biological control programs. And so some of those exotic parasitoids that we've been working with, one is the egg parasitoid. It's called Oobius agrilli. Um, the little tiny wasp inserts it, its egg into the egg of the emerald ash borer where it develops and kills the egg. Um, another one is uh, a larval parasitoid. This one is called Tetrasticus planipensi. Um, this one, the wasp drills her ovipositor into the wood and inserts in eggs into the larvae of the emerald ash borer. So it's called an endoparasite. The, the wasp larvae develop inside 
the larvae of the emerald dash borer, and she lays up to 80 eggs in one larvae. So we have lots of wasps emerging from one EAB larvae. Um, the next, okay, I probably went too fast. Um, the next um, parasitoid that we've been working with is Spathius agrilli, also a larval parasitoid. And this one, again, um, drills are ovipositor into the wood, oviposits onto the um, larvae, and is considered an ectoparasitoid. So the larvae actually on the, on the outside of the larvae of the EAB, and they feed from the outside, but ultimately kill it, and it's gregarious, so you have lots of individual parasitoids consuming one EAB larvae. Okay, so these are the three that I just mentioned. These are the three that we've been working with. They were approved for release since 2007 in the United States. Um, in addition, in 2016, we had one more parasitoid approved. This is another Spathius species, so related to the, the agrilli. Um, this one's native to Russia. And um, I did forget to mention that the, one of the issues that we've determined with Spathy is that it's not as cold tolerant as we would like it to be, and it isn't doing well in the colder temperatures in the United States. The Russian Spathius is much more cold tolerant than the one that we've been releasing. So um, we've slowed down our releases on this, and we're starting to do releases of this one. In addition, the, um, another issue with the Tetrasticus is that um, it's been working really well on our ash trees, but when the ash trees get bigger and the bark starts to get thicker, so about 12 centimeter dBH or larger, um, parasitism rates go down because its ovipositor is too short and it can't get through that thick bark. Okay, so those are just a couple of things that we've learned through our research um, about these parasitoids. When we are evaluating these parasitoids, we do the releases, and then we need to evaluate what's happening with them, both for the native and the exotic parasitoids. And so we use different methods to do this, and what we do is we go out to, to our, our natural areas and our urban areas, and we identify trees that are being attacked by emerald ash borer, but they're not yet killed by emerald ash borer. So you can see here lots of dieback, but still some foliage. Um, one of the things we do is to harvest the trees, so we fell the trees, we cut them into logs, we bring the logs back, and we put them into what we call rearing barrels, and basically we can rear out and collect all of the EAB and natural enemies that are associated with it and, and be able to um, collect data on what those, those guys are and how many EAB there are. The other approach is we consider, we call it debarking. So we go to the field and we use a draw knife and we peel the bark off of the tree and what that allows us to do is to look at the, the galleries under the, the bark that are made by EAB and determine the fate of emerald ash borers. So um, it's really easy when you only have a low population of EAB, but when you have a tree that's totally girdled, it becomes a little bit more challenging to follow those individual larvae. But again, it's a good way to determine what's killing, what are the mortality factors that are killing those EAB or not killing them. So sometimes it's killed by the tree, so tree defenses. Other times predation by things like the woodpeckers and other birds. Um, diseases, there are some diseases that also can attack the, the, the larvae in the tree, or there are unknown causes of mortality where it's dead, the larvae's dead and we just don't know what it is. We can find out, look for signs of parasitism and which parasitoids they are. And then we can also tell if EAB is alive. 
if I can get it to show up. There we go. Okay. So it's a good it's a good method for um, assessing what's what's attacking um, and their impact on EAB. Okay, and then I also mentioned the egg parasitoid. Um, this one's a little bit more challenging to survey for and assess. Um, the eggs are laid on the tree, so we do what we just visual searches. So we're out there in the field and we're visually searching the bark for these teeny tiny eggs. Um, and then once we've done that, we peel the bark off. We collect the bark and we sift through it, and then we look more for teeny tiny eggs and parasitoids in there. So it's a pretty challenging um, approach to doing it, but we haven't come up with a better method yet. So now let's talk about some of the release programs that we did. I'm going to start off talking about some of the work that's been done in Maryland and then move on to some of the work that's been done in, in Michigan. Okay. So this is Maryland. In Maryland, we've done a number of releases um, and I'm going to be talking about work that started in 2009 and went through 2014. Uh, we released parasitoids, both, the, the, both larval parasitoids, the Tetrasticus and the Spathius, um, in 32 sites in Maryland, 32 sites for um, the Tetrasticus, only 26 sites for the Spathius, but they were both being released. Um, we then had to assess whether those um, natural enemies established or not. And this is just a graph showing the release, the number of parasitoids released over time, over the years, for the Tetrasticus and the um, Spathius. But basically, we released lots of parasitoids. When we assessed them for their establishment and um, dispersal, we found that um, we looked at about 400 trees that we either debarked or we harvested the, the natural enemies out of, and we collected spathius from 77, um, we collected 77 spathius from six of the release sites. And then every release site also was paired with a non-release control site. And um, for the Tetrasticus, we found uh, over 1,800 parasitized larvae from 19 sites 12 of which were sites where releases were done, seven were sites where releases were not done. So what this is telling us, this data says that the, um, the parasitoids are establishing and the Tetrasticus is doing exceptionally well, and they are also dispersing because they're showing up in our non-release locations too. In addition to these exotic parasitoids that were released, we also collected native parasitoids, and we collected 122 larvae that were parasitized by uh, a diversity or a complex of native parasitoid or parasitic wasp. So our native parasitoids are moving onto emerald ash borer and attacking it. We also wanted to know kind of what rates of parasitism were going on, so what impact were they having, and um, you don't have to learn these, these um, look at these graphs too closely, but this is basically the years after release, and you can see this is, well, this is percent parasitism of the larvae. Parasitism rates increased over time, um, and this is a rate of about 12%, so still pretty low after that many years of parasitoid release, but not unusual for a biological control program. It can take some time to do it. Um, and then this is just another indicator of parasitism increasing over time. So again, demonstrating establishment and dispersal of our parasitoids. From um, our debarking and, and looking at the fate of what's killing those different larvae um, in the trees, 
we found um, probably the most interesting thing here is that there was a good percentage of larvae that were killed by the trees. So tree defenses were killing the trees. And these were usually early instar um, EAB, so about 30%. Um, and again, we already knew that there were low rates of parasitism and, and relatively low rates of predation. So to summarize the work in Maryland, um, Tetrasticus um, su successfully established and um, dispersed, and they were dispersing um, up to about four kilometers from our release sites. We also know that um, the parasitism rates were relatively low, ranging from about four to 12 percent, depending on the study site. Um, and what these findings suggest is that um, we need to, um, that, that it is happening, but um, that we need to probably give us a little bit more time to um, see better results. So in Michigan, where they've been releasing parasitoids longer, um, they have more significant um, or higher parasitism rates. And I'm going to talk about some of that work there. So um, our hope is that in Maryland, with a little bit more time, our rates of parasitism will increase, just like it's been doing in Michigan. So these studies that I'm going to talk about now um, were being done by my colleagues. Okay, some of my colleagues, and um, what they did is they had six forest sites in Michigan where they had two plots within each site, a release plot and a no-release control plot. So these, these are um, where, where the exotic parasitoids were released. They released the same parasitoids that we've been releasing in, in Maryland, and when they, and they did the sampling was very similar to, to what we were doing. So when we look at the recovery of the egg parasitoid, the obvious, the two different methods, the visual searching method and the bark sieving method, um, both indicated that the oobius, well, we had oobius that were parasitizing eggs at relatively high rates, about thir almost 30%, and um, also they were being found in the, the no-release control sites, which indicates the oobius was also dispersing. When, we look at when they looked at predation by birds, and again, their project ran from, from 2008 through 2015. Um, you can see that predation was relatively um, sporadic. There was no particular pattern. A little bit higher earlier in this study and a little bit lower later, but, and, and also happening in both the control and the, the release sites. Okay, um, and then we wanted to look at... Um, the parasitism by the native parasitoids, or the native parasitic wasps. And you can see um, very early um, when we were having the, the outbreak levels of, of EAB, we had a good amount of parasitism um, by our native parasitoids in 2010. And then by 2011, those numbers went down, but we were still getting parasitism. And again, both in the sites where we were releasing our exotic parasitoids and in our, our no-release sites. Tetrasticus, which is our most um, abundant and successful parasitoid to date of the exotic parasitoids, um, the arrows indicate you know, their releases. And you can see, even when they were being released, early in, in the study, we were getting low levels of parasitism. And then as time went on, we were getting higher levels of parasitism. So over time, um, we were getting over almost 25 to 30% parasitism by the exotic parasitoid. And again, in both the control and release sites, so they were dispersing um, in addition to parasitizing. 
And then we wanted to also, we were looking at emerald ash borer densities and what were happening with them over time. And early during the, we had the outbreak phase where we had emerald ash borer high populations in, in the earlier years of the study. And then later their populations went down. And this is the mean densities of EAB that, that have been standardized by the amount of tree tissue or phloem tissue. So you might say, well, of course the numbers are going down because a lot of trees are dying and there aren't as many trees. But the fact that it's been standardized to tree area kind of accounts for that. So this truly is a, a, truly is a decline in the EAB population in those study sites. And, we, and we, now, so this is happening. This looks good. We're seeing lower numbers of EAB. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of tree mortality in the meantime, but lower numbers. So now what we're interested in is what's going on here. Kind of this is the outbreak phase, and this is kind of the aftermath of the, the big wave of the EAB has gone through, and these are the aftermath years. So what these, what these researchers did was they wanted to look at what was going on with the saplings and the new, new trees that were coming up, the young trees. So there were, they, for the last three years of the study, they found that anywhere from about 60 to 80% of the saplings that were in those study plots were not attacked by EAB. So that's good. We've got new trees coming up. They weren't attacked by EAB. Of those that were attacked by EAB, these are the, um, this is the percent parasitism by the tetrasticus, the exotic parasitoid. And again, I'm not even going to mention control and release because they're just all merged together now. There are parasitoids everywhere. Um, you can see that we had pretty high levels of parasitism ranging from about 36% all the way up to 85%. So what we're seeing happening is that in these, this kind of, um, aftermath of, of the, the wave, we're getting good control by these, this exotic parasitoid, um, kind of reducing the population growth of EAB. So it's maintaining a pretty steady low population of EAB, which is very promising. So to summarize, the native natural enemies um, are playing a role in suppressing EAB, especially in the, um, the outbreak phase of the, of the project or of the infestation. Um, the introduced biological control agent is a dominant um, mortality factor later in the, in the um, population um, dynamics of, of EAB. And the, about 75% of the ash saplings that are coming up are not being killed by EAB. And the tetrasticus is, is giving some good suppression and regulation of that is what appears to be happening. Okay. So that's all good, and it's very promising. It looks like we've got biocontrol happening, and with enough time, we're getting some good results and higher rates of parasitism. But if you remember, I said that the tetrasticus did not do well as trees got bigger and their bark got thicker. And since that's the key parasitoid that's, that's kind of suppressing on the emerald ash borer um, populations now, it, we, we wonder what's going to happen as those trees get bigger. Um, so that's why we're looking at this fourth parasitoid, the Spathes galenae, um, and we're going to be doing releases of that to evaluate their ability to, to, to continue to suppress the EAB populations. Thank you. So, um, so now what I'd like to do is just quickly go over a couple of ongoing projects that we have with emerald ash borer in addition to the ones that, that I've just talked about um, 
And in Maryland, we have been looking at what we call an IPM in Emerald, um, for Emerald Ash Borer. And one of the projects we're looking at is using a combination of insecticides, systemic insecticides, to save our, our big, our kind of valuable ash trees in combination with doing releases of parasitoids. And we're comparing that to just parasitoid releases on its own. So the idea is, do the, do the chemicals save our trees and protect them, and also reduce the, they're, they're reducing the EAB populations because that's not a source of food for them, so it should help to lower the populations, while the parasitoids will then hopefully regulate the, um, the EAB that are there. So kind of get the wave, protect the trees for the wave, and then the parasitoids hopefully will suppress after the wave has gone through. Also, we, another project we're working on, we know that EAB doesn't just occur in, in natural forests. It's a huge pest in urban systems. This is a parking lot um, in Maryland near our campus. Um, so we also are looking at the um, differences in parasitism and, parasitism com and parasitoid complexes um, from an, along the urbanization gradient, so from very natural forest areas to um, more urban rural areas. And we are also looking at habitat factors that may be influencing those natural enemies and biological control impacts and trying to figure out if there are ways we can enhance the impact of the natural enemies. In addition, um, how many, do you guys have fringe trees here, white fringe trees, Chironanthus? Okay. We have them in Maryland, too. This is a native species. Can anybody tell me what family fringe tree is in? Oleaceae. Can anybody tell me what family ash is in? Guess what? In 2014, um, we found that EAB jumped from ash and is also now attacking our fringe trees, our native fringe trees in the U.S. They don't seem to be doing as well um, as they do on ash, but they, they have been found now in six states in the field attacking and completing development. Okay. And the guy who's been working on this, Don Cipollini, has done some lab studies and also shown that they will complete development on olive. So that's only in the lab that's happened. But So in addition to monitoring your ash, you also need to just kind of keep an eye out on your Oleaceae in general. And so we're trying, and, and what we're doing in our lab is to try to figure out what, um, if uh, the parasitoids will also attack EAB on the fringe tree as well as it does on the ash tree. So we're kind of all that data is still going. So what's kind of the, the take home that you guys should be thinking about in, um, in the UK as far as EAB is concerned? I think you need to be prepared and have a plan because there's a high probability um, that you guys are going to get EAB. How many of you guys think EAB is going to get here? Anybody think it's not? Okay, let's hope we're all, let's, ho let's hope we're all wrong, okay? okay. Um, you should be reading the literature and learn from what we've done in the U.S. and Canada. Um, Ted gave a very nice overview of some of their program in Canada, so there's a lot that you can learn. You guys need to catch EAB early, so as soon as, you know, the sooner you catch it when it gets here, the better. So active monitoring and survey programs should be going on, and I think it's really important to make sure that all of your your eyes in the field are trained. So not even not only the arborists and the practitioners, but also citizens. We have found that some of our exotic pests have been actually identified by just the general public who reported it. Oops, sorry. And then um, once it gets here, identify what your keeper trees are. 
um, treat those with a systemic insecticide to help them survive through the big wave of, of EAB outbreak, and then at the same time be implementing a biological control program to helpfully um, establish a more sustainable suppression of them, and also be prepared to cut down lots of ash trees, because you'll be able to save some, but you'll have to cut down lots. But remember, biological control does give us hope, so don't think it's all doom and gloom. We do have hope that we can survive this, this outbreak of, of EAB. Okay. Um, the second pest I want to talk about is the brown monorated stink bug, and we've heard a little bit about this earlier in the week when Mike Raup was talking. This pest invaded um, the U.S. in the mid-1990s, and it was first um, brought into, it was first detected in Pennsylvania, and since then it's now been found, it's now found in, what is it, um, 43 states, and Three, uh, three Canadian provinces. So it came in in Pennsylvania, and what the colors represent is the actual level of, of pestiness that, is, uh, that it is. So in this red area, this is the epicenter. It's a severe agricultural pest and nuisance pest because it gets into people's homes and buildings to overwinter. Um, and then in the, the, the gold areas, it's an agricultural and nuisance pest. In the green areas, it's just been detected. Okay, and then the yellow, yellow area is just a nuisance pest. So um, in Europe, where have we seen emerald ash borer? Um, it was first detected in Europe and Switzerland in 2007, and you can see now it has been found in 15 countries. And watch out because all of these blue dots indicate where it's been detected, and right here in France, it's not a far jump over to the UK. And... Um, brown monorated stink bug is a very good traveler. It likes to get into cars and nooks and crannies and packing and all kinds of stuff. So um, pretty good probability you guys will be seeing this one too. Like I said, it's a nuisance pest in structures, so it likes to move into homes, buildings, offices to overwinter in large numbers. Um, it's an economic pest for many of our fruit and vegetable crops. Um, and it also, it's a sucking insect, so when it sucks on the fruit, it damages the fruit. Um, it feeds on a wide variety of ornamental hosts. And it also seems to track um, resources, so it will track its, its um, fruit resources and foliage resources. Okay. We've been doing work in nurseries on this, trying to evaluate the biological control. Um, so we looked at... Um, um, we used eggs as our, our study stage because in, in Asia, that's the most susceptible age mm -hmm. to natural enemies. Um, and then also predators and parasitoids. And what we found was we could look at the eggs out in the field and determine what killed them. So were they, were they healthy eggs and in, in, in BMSB emerged or were they um, chewed by predators and killed or sucked by um, predators and killed or were they parasitized by little wasps? And then we also had a category of unknown mortality. We weren't sure what killed it. So for this study, in our nurseries, we, we put either egg masses out or we looked at naturally laid egg masses. And you can see in 2012, we looked at over 24,000 eggs, and in 2013, over 32,000 eggs. So we studied a lot of eggs. We determined that over time, in both years, parasitism rates increased over the, the season. And we had an average of 58% egg mortality overall from all sources. When we looked at the specific levels of mortality and who was causing it, you can see that parasitic wasps caused the highest rates of mortality. 
And then the next levels of mortality were this unascribed category, and that predation was relatively low compared to the parasitism. We determined that our native parasitoids were doing a really good job, um, and then those parasitoids, when we identified who they were, um, we looked at, we identified over 5,000 species, and there's a genera in the um, anastatus, which were um, the highest number of parasitoids, um, and in particularly this anastatus reduvii. But the anastatus made up 98% of the parasitoids that emerged from those BMSB. In 2013, we looked at even more eggs, and we found um, a very similar pattern. We also found that the sex ratio of males to females was higher the second year of the study, and basically what that indicates is an expanding population of our parasitoids. This is what the parasitoids look like. And in this study, we um, determined that we had high egg mortality in general, um, and that it increased through the season. Our native parasitoids are creating new associations with brown monomerated stink bug and providing um, high levels of mortality, um, and that those levels of mortality increased from um, over time, from year to year. Oops, sorry. And um, they also were expanding, appeared to be expanding. And this anastatus is a generalist parasitoid, so it attacks um, eggs of insects in various, of various groups of insects in, in different orders. Am I done? Okay. All right. So um, we had lots of predators feeding on them and doing a good job, um, and they, they um, also are native predators to help suppress the populations. So for brown monomerated stink bug, we're having um, some, some good effects of, um, of our native natural enemies. And in general, um, keep pushing biological control, look at your native, look at your exotic, um, and integrate a program of both is likely going to give you the most success. And good luck, and we have hope. Don't forget. Okay, thanks. And after her presentation, we caught up with Paula to discuss her route into arboriculture and talk about some of the issues that she feels are a priority in this Talking Trees interview. So I started um, in college just studying plant science, um, thinking if I learned about plants, I could help solve world issues in, in agriculture and stuff. And um, then I learned about pest management, and that got me excited. And then my first job out of college was in, in retail nursery where we sold ornamental plants, and I learned a lot about ornamental plants and just became passionate about them and fell in love with them. So I'm an entomologist, and I work in the area of pest management um, in ornamental systems woody trees and shrubs, and we often, um, within pest management, I tend to focus on applied research in the area of biological control, so getting the good bugs to control the bad bugs. I think they play a lot of roles. Um, there's the ecological role that they play, because being a scientist, I, I kind of think of that first, so, you know, carbon sequestration and, and other things that they do ecologically and, and, you know, community dynamics with other organisms. Um, that's really important. Cities that have more green space, people overall are happier and less depression and things like that. So, so green space is good for mental health. Just in the last couple of years, there was a study that came out. Um, we have emerald ash borer in the States, and so we have millions of trees being killed in urban areas, natural and urban areas, but the urban areas. And the study showed that um, in cities that had lost a lot of trees to emerald ash borer, that it was affecting the health of, of people that lived in that city. If we start to lose our trees, 
there are many cascading effects from that. And I think there are lots of examples of exotic insects and exotic diseases coming into countries and, and just really crushing populations of trees and eliminating trees. I think the threat is there and it's got a lot of cascading consequences in addition to removing the trees from the systems, but all of the consequences associated with those. So, so definitely should be on the top of the list of, of many government and, and other agencies. Integrated pest management. And I think that's really the best way to manage our plants because it includes you know, all the cultural things, the tree care, keeping your trees healthy, putting trees in good sites um, where they're gonna do better. Um, and then all, all the cultural mechanical things that go and the maintenance things that go with tree care. All those are really important because if those aren't done right, then it um, predisposes them to other things like diseases and insects. Within pest management, I tend to focus on applied research in the area of biological control, so getting the good bugs to control the bad bugs, and in particular with invasive species. So right now in the U.S., we have um, two big ones that are attacking our, our ornamental systems, the um, emerald ash borer, which is devastating, and then another one called the brown mommerated stink bug. Yes, it's a brown mommerated stink bug, and it's from Asia, of course, and um, it was introduced into our country in the mid-90s, and for both of those, we've been doing research looking at the indigenous natural enemies, so they're both exotic insects that came into the U.S., so I'm trying to learn what our native natural enemies within the U.S. are, are doing to those exotic pests, so are they moving on there? Are they attacking it and having an impact on their populations and helping to suppress it? In addition to that, the other component of biological control for these exotics is scientists go to the country of origin of the pest, they find out what natural enemies are controlling it there, we bring that into the United States, and then we do a lot of studies to try to determine if we can release it and not have non-target effects and, and have positive impacts on the the invading pest. So whenever you see something that doesn't look right on your trees, you should then pursue it and, and try to figure out what's going on. So diagnosing any problems is really important. And the tree guys have it hard. I'm an entomologist, I just need to know insects. You guys need to know all the abiotic and the diseases and the insects that are potential problems. So you guys have a challenging job. So I know it's important to be aware of everything. Well, I think we have a real opportunity here with um, the big issue of global change, um, global warming, um, which is a worldwide issue that many people are aware of, even though not everybody agrees that it happens. As scientists, we know that it happens, and as tree um, people, I'm sure most of you are aware that it's happening. I think trees are really good systems to study some of those effects. So trees and their interactions with other organisms, so insects, and pollinators and how they interact. So I think if we're gonna see the effects of, of, global, of global warming, um, insects and trees are good systems to look at those because you can more readily detect range expansions of trees and where they grow and range expansions of insects and that attack the trees and um, or pollinate the trees. So I think they're really good systems for that. So I think using them in the context of global change and studying and learning about it um, is, is a good way to bring them to a higher level of attention to the general public. In addition to all the other cool things that trees do with um, 
you know, helping with pollution and, and all of those types of things and producing oxygen. Um, so I think that's good. Yeah, yeah, I kind of <laughs> like that stuff, yeah. Mm. And you're going to edit this as, like, if I mess up, you'll cut it out, or is this going to just go? We'll, we'll roll it all if you, if you want to do something. Like if I dropped an F-bomb or something, you would edit that out? Yeah, <laughs> just drop as many as you like. This is the UK. Yeah, <laughs> you guys probably do that.